Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 104, Davos Introduction and Davos 1 in a Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Earlier today I was thinking about the time, I don't know if it actually happened twice, uh, I don't remember because clearly we didn't remember our numbering. I was thinking about that as I was scrolling through things. I was like, remember that time we forgot the numbers of our episodes? So Yeah, and because we forgot the numbers of our episodes, we were like, hey, by the way, this is our 100th The Song of Ice and Fire episode, I guess. Congrats to us! <laughs> we did it! Look, I do math a lot at my day job. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always doing math. I feel like I puzzle you sometimes when I'm like, Eliana, here's the math I'm doing. So, uh, I deserve a break at night. Davos can do my math for me. He does know his sums. That he does. That he does. His little sum mm. something. That's how I have seven sums. Sum, sum. You know? Uh, I'm excited to be doing Davos. I did not... <sighs> There was a new surge in excitement today that shook the fandom. Oh, uh, truly shook. I don't truly shook. The whole fandom was shook today. Today is ten six that we are recording this in the evening, October 6th, 2020. And a certain person, James Hibbard, released a book called Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon. It's the official untold story of Game of Thrones from the filming, some of the production, the interviews, some very specific quotes by George. You know, yada yada, the whole shebang, the whole nine yards. And basically, the big thing that happened today is that there was a reiteration of a quote by George R. R. Martin stating that Stannis will decide to burn his daughter. George R. R. Martin himself was quoted saying this. I mean, Mrs. yeah, George said it. And you know what? For many of us... We already knew, as we have said in previous yep. episodes, but, you know, it, it's good. He said it before, but people didn't believe it because of paraphrasing, and they believed it wasn't good faith. Yep, and, you know, George proved it, he said it, and I'm just glad that we can- Move past it. Put that to rest, and we are- No, we're not gonna move past it, we're gonna revel in it all nope. fucking episode. <sighs> I'm just- I mean, like- Rereading this episode, especially, like, this chapter, rereading this chapter very closely just sets some of the beginning. Uh, obviously, the prologue, which, yes, for those of you asking someday, yes, 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 we will do the prologues. I promise they will be a POV. That is the spoiler you can get from us right now. Uh, we will do prologues as a POV and epilogues as well, a different time. However, I digress. I think... George had, like, rephrased it, right? Like, it had been said from George, D&D, &D, the, the, the big showrunners for the, the bad show, had constantly said, like, George told us this. And people were like, no. And now George is quoted in a book that has a, a sign-off from official HBO yada yada saying it. Yeah. And the same dissenters feel the same way. So I feel like we're not going to gloat about it because that would be awful because... I feel like Shireen does not deserve this horrible fucking fate, but, like, it's just a penchant for where this story is going that I think is important to keep in mind while we read. Indeed. Indeed. So, you know, that happened, and it's something that, you know, now that that has been put out there and 
put to rest, we can, I think, really dig into some of the themes in in a lot more depth and a lot knowing that endpoint concretely from George. You know, knowing that it's driving towards that action, I think that allows us to to really get a bit of clarity in terms of how we talk about these chapters. Yeah, I don't like being censored, and it feels it feels right. But, you know, uh, somewhere where we talk about Stannis, and not just Stannis, a lot of other things about A Song of Ice and Fire, but most importantly, how Nelly Furtado's song, I'm Like a Bird, intersects with Stannis' storyline, as well as <laughs> exchanging food recipes if you want to know how my uh, attempts at making dim sum when the answer is poorly and we have a discord where we have a lot of these discussions <laughs> yes if you are in our thunder tier or above the ten dollar tier on patreon at patreon.com slash girls gone canon you have access to discord which is a really cool there's a lot of voice interfacing some streaming and video interfacing we play some video games and hang out and chat with people uh, there are kind of some message board styled channels on it a la slack it, it's just fun it's a really fun way to connect we're kind of hanging out and we've been doing a fun thing that we're calling brunch and happy hour depending on where you are in the time zone land and last month's was on the fuckboys of westeros yeah, it's a fun, just casual, hanging out conversation. We have slides, but they don't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we don't really need the slides, but I feel like they add good value. Yeah, they set the tone, they make people laugh, and we include some really cool fan art from around the fandom, right? And credit them. Except for Darian, the singer, apparently, who uh, will tell you that. That was included in the slideshow, and did you know there's doesn't seem to be much fan art of him, so I had to pull some fucking clip art. You know what? It was free for use. <laughs> yes. Well, if you haven't snagged it yet and you are a member of Patreon in the Thunder tier and above, make sure to get your Discord link. Link your account for Discord to your Patreon. You should receive a link and we will give you a tier to get you launched into the program and get you out of the privacy restrictions. Or if you're having any issues, send us a DM over on Twitter at GirlsGoneCanon or an email at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N at gmail.com and we will get you hooked up as soon as we can. Yes. And so something that we'll probably be discussing a lot there and here is Davos. Yes, I'm so excited again to jump into Davos. I uh, I don't know that I've examined him closely before on this level as in like chapter to chapter to chapter. So yeah. this is fun. I'm seeing a lot of new stuff and a lot of new dynamics. And today we are going to do a modified lightning round. What that means is we are going to talk about Davos before the books as a youth during Robert's Rebellion, and Davos before A Clash of Kings as well. Before we get into our main lightning round, which is the chapters that lead up to Davos 1, beginning in A Clash of Kings. Yes. So, first of all, just setting the stage, in my opinion, just to remind everyone, Davos is, I think, a bit younger. Much younger in the books than he is in the television show. But going much, much further back to when he was way, way, way younger, as a child, as a youth, he was born in Flea Bottom. He mentored under a Tyroshi smuggler slash pirate, Roro Uhoris, until Roro 
was caught and executed by the Night's Watch for trading weapons to free folk. Then he sailed on the Cobblecat. Eventually he married a woman named Maria and had seven sons with her. Seven sons, a holy number. Then we move on to Robert's Rebellion, the big event where Davos smuggled onions into Storm's End about, oh, a year into the siege. He sailed around the Redwine Fleet's blockade that was stationed in Shipbreaker's Bay. As a reward, he gets knighted by Stannis, but as punishment, Stannis cuts his fingers down for his past crimes. He trades his fingers, basically, for a step up in society for his family. Yes, and then Davos before a Clash of Kings. He captains Black Betha, which is a, one of Stannis' war galleys. And he actually was in King's Landing for Joffrey's named a tourney, which occurs before A Song of Ice and Fire starts, and also for what it's worth, for what it's seaworth. I would say <laughs> it's quite significant that of all the characters, Davos is actually, I think, our very first new POV that the readers are presented with as we read through the books and as more get added to A Song of Ice and Fire. And then right after Davos, we're followed with the other new POV, Theon, who continues the idea of, like, I don't know, things about the sea. But I think there might be a couple more connections. We'll touch on that. Probably in a more, bit, but I'm going to just. I got say you. I got ocean. you, Eliana. Oh, Okay. Well, see. that launches us into our actual lightning round uh, with A Clash of Kings and What We Missed. That starts off in the prologue, a very Dragonstone-centered uh, chapter. Maester Crescent thinks the only way to save Stannis from the new red god he's chosen is to poison Lady Melisandre. Unfortunately, Lady Melisandre is a little too sharp and it results in Crescent's death by his own poison, his own hand, and on Stannis's journey goes. Arya won in A Clash of Kings. Arya is traveling north under a pseudonym with Yorin and recruits for the Night's Watch. After getting into it with some of Ari's new brothers, Yorin punishes her and reveals her father was not supposed to die. His original sentence was to head north with the Watch. Sansa won. Sansa attends Joffrey's really shitty birthday bash and saves Danto Hollard's life. Tyrion enters at the chapter's end to take post as acting hand of the king. Tyrion won. Tyrion and Cersei discuss the capital's state of being. Later, he travels to the Broken Anvil, where Varys has learned of Tyrion's paramour. Bran won. Prince Brandon Stark's wolf dreams begin to increase, but Maester Lewin shrugs them all off with some potions. Arya too. Arya speaks with Jock and Hagar. Gold cloaks come to take one of the recruits away, but Yorin resists. John won. John pours over the maps Sam has found in the library. He presents them to Jayor Mormont, who tells him of Aemon Targaryen's history. Hmm. Catelyn won. Rob presents terms to Cleos Frey, and later Catelyn argues with him over Jaime and Theon. Later, she plans an alliance with Renly, with her uncle Brynden. Tyrion too. Tyrion takes Jano Slint out for dinner before he fucks oh. him over. He also shows Varys that he's really not fucking playing around. Arya 3. Yorin's crew must step off the path to avoid the gold cloaks. Arya is frightened by a wolf pack in the woods. Yorin says they should have taken a ship. 
Ah. Davos won. The gods burn in front of Davos Seaworth, who has given and traded all to his king. The Red Woman proclaims Stannis Azora High, but later Davos meets with his colleague, Salador San, who says Stannis is a fake. <sighs> Much later, Stannis explains to Davos he seeks a higher power on his side and plans to follow R'hllor wherever it takes him. And so it opens. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. They were all afire now, maiden mother, warrior and smith, the crone with her pearl eyes and the father with his gilded beard, even the stranger carved to look more animal than human. The old dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce, hungry light. Heat rose, shivering from the chill air. Behind the gargoyles and stone dragons on the castle walls seemed blurred, as if Davos were seeing them through a veil of tears, or as if the beasts were trembling, stirring. So, Davos and his second son, Allard, which kind of sounds like Mallard, not important, <clears throat> watch and- Davos Duck? Whoa. Scrooge. Um, oh, DuckTales. This is DuckTales. And Allard expresses <laughs> disappointment. Allard is actually his most rash son, and Davos thinks Allard would end up on the wall had Stannis not speared him. And then he thinks, uh, I guess I owe Stannis for that one, too. This is a lot different than the Davos that a lot of us are thinking of in our minds. Uh, maybe the bad show plays into that for some people, or maybe it's just lack of a reread. But this is Davos before losing his sons in the Blackwater, and to Stannis before having to truly choose against Stannis, his god, and what's morally right. I think it's well-placed with Arya 2, where they enter a village that's barely surviving with the war that's tearing about the Riverlands and a Baratheon bastards on board there, no less. Davos later says he saw nothing in the flames during this ritual, but that's untrue. Davos saw war. Also, I would like to point out, Stannis and Melisandre burning the gods in this first big chapter besides the prologue kind of feels like a red flag, am I right? I'm sorry, did you say red, red flag, flag, not red stag? The red stag oh, is a red, like a red flag? Stag. Okay. God, Eliana, I have a heart, okay? Oh! <laughs> we did Because you know a stag. Oh, I'm impressed with us. We didn't write these ones, these jokes. <laughs> no, we didn't. These are just off the, off the stag cuff. That one's not as good. Off the antlers. Oh my god. <laughs> stop me now. I'm never gonna stop. Uh, yeah, um... Because we are just starting, right? We are just starting uh, Davos, and while he is not the first POV of this new book, it is, you know, still still like kind of the opening of A Clash of Kings. It's on the heels of A Game of Thrones, and of course it comes after Sansa's chapters and Arya's chapters, which as you said are well-placed. They really show the devastation that has befallen Westeros, and it, it comes after all these chapters that are full of trauma and grief and how the whole nation's been destroyed and we ourselves as readers were still reeling from the death of Ned Stark like what the fuck did that really happen and the burning of the seven ends up kind of feeling like a burning of those old systems of belief it's it's a burning it's a the death of this narrative justice that we all expect from our stories when it comes to Ned Stark but also it's Davos in many ways he takes up that mantle that Ned has left behind that vacuum as another sort of patriarch right he's the one who's now stepping in as this everyman archetypal lens and comes to sort of be that moral compass that Ned had originally filled in 
Yeah, he very much carries the devoted father vibe from Ned. And even in the way that Davos has sacrificed and given Devon to a Baratheon, right? Like how Ned gave Sansa to the Baratheons. She was the bargaining chip to marry Joffrey to tie their families together. And so that Ned's family could see a little bit of that political gratiation. And the way that Ned disconnects from Sansa when he realizes he can no longer protect her, like when he has to kill her wolf and realizes, oh my God, what have I fucking done? It's much like Davos with Devin after the Blackwater, right? After he's lost everything else. We even see Davos following that version of Eddard's The Seed is Strong plot on Dragonstone, trying to save the children and save a bastard when it comes to Edric Storm. Yeah, that's a great point. And saving the children, that's how you know someone's the moral compass in this story, <laughs> as we've discussed before. And this chapter's and all the chapters to come with Stannis and Melisandre are in many ways, I think, an interrogation, right, of those systems of faith and belief including those uh, in terms of the order of things and the order that we expect out of the world, as well as, of course, religion. It's something that we've already started to bring up in the discussion around Stannis, whom you might remember from the previous chapters that we did about Asha, um, that we broke down with Alicia and Wendy, especially in terms of that idea of faith. But the language throughout this chapter, I think, really harkens to that uh, and that, those ideas of belief. You have uh, Davos seeing the burning of the Seven through a, uh, and it says Veil of Tears, but Veil here is spelled V-E-I-L, like a, a cloth that covers one's face. It, it's obscured. But it is actually, I would say, a play on this term, Veil of Tears, Veil spelled V-A-L-E, which you, I assume, have in your vocabulary because it's like literally a place <laughs> in the story, uh, referring to something like a valley. And... The Veil of Tears, as in V-A-L-E, is, is actually a concept from Christianity, or a term from it, that of something that one would pass through before entering heaven, and interestingly is actually something that people, that the characters pass through in Harlan Ellison's story, I Have No Mouth and I Am a Scream, which, you know, George was really fucking into Harlan Ellison, but that's coming through here with the burning of the seven is, I think, significant, and we'll see all those different issues evolve. Yeah, notably the Vale, as we know, is very, very pro the seven. That is their whole thing. And on top of that, as we're about to learn, Davos actually is very comfortable with the Vale, right? He spent a lot of mm. time on the outskirts of the Vale sailing around. So I love that he actually uses that there. That's a really good play on words to catch. Hundreds come to watch the Red Woman prance around the fire, praying in a sized tongue, Valyrian, and the common tongue as well. Relor, come to us in our darkness, she called. Lord of light, we offer you these false gods, these seven who are one, and him, the enemy. Take them and cast your light upon us, for the night is dark and full of terrors. I don't know if I can, like, read these Melisandre lines sometimes and not think of the fucking elbow in front of the fire gif. Um, it's all I think about. So we learned that Melisandre has delivered this right in, in three different languages in uh, the Ashai tongue, Valyrian and the common tongue. And I, I kind of thought it was interesting. It reminds me of, um, you know, the, the original language, right? The one from far away. And then you, ha it mm -hmm. reminds me of, uh, Italy with like the old Latin, you know, that it's being delivered in Valyrian and then the common Italian yes. and, and the, the language of the people. Yeah, there's a lot of that in here. There's a lot of that. And 
We hear Queen Selyse echo her, and Stannis just watches impassively. But he's still dressed up in his Sunday church clothes, right? To pull back to that. He's still dressed up in his Sunday best. And the Sept, for example, the night before, was a very nice place, right? This was the place where Aegon had knelt and prayed before he sailed there at Dragonstone. So Stannis had to make sure he was wearing his best while he let the Queen's men demolish it, right? While Septimbar curses them. Yes, unfortunately, Santa said, sure, go demolish the sap, take your power, have fun. And also, of course, we have some people that are defending the sept. We have Sir Hubard Rampton and his three sons who try to defend it. They slay four queen's men, but then they're overtaken, ridiculously overtaken. And we get a peek at Gunser Sunglass, who tells Stannis, I can't do this, man. This doesn't seem right. And he then gets sent to a cell with Septon, Barr, and the two remaining alive Rampton sons. Davos thinks the other lords had not been slow to take the lesson. <sighs> okay, so we're at the beginning of Stannis' plot, right? Yeah. This is where it really starts. This is where it ramps up. But the story seems to kind of be the same as where we left it in Asha and John. Uh, it's still the same for this red god with Stannis. Burn your past down or you'll be jailed. It reminds me a little bit of the Dacian persecution of Christians uh, and many other religious persecutions, but we'll focus with this one just for time's sake. Stay with me. It's 250 AD, uh, 249-250 AD, and Roman Emperor Dacian, Dacius, who became emperor from a really big military win or several leading up to 249, he issues an edict that everyone in the empire, except for those that practice Judaism, have to perform a sacrifice for the gods and for his health in front of a Roman magistrate and other witnesses, and then they must provide that witness. Christians were not considered to be a religion at the time due to their monotheistic beliefs, and they had to choose between their beliefs and the law. It was seen as non-traditional, disruptive. Christianity was kind of seen as a fad back then. It was a new religion. An unknown number of Christians ended up executed or just died uh, for lack of resources for refusing to perform these sacrifices, including the Pope, Pope Fabian at the time. Others went into hiding, but many performed the rituals to survive, and this ended up causing tension between these two parties, some who had performed the sacrifices and those who had avoided and had not. It wasn't called deliberate at the time, and there's no quote-unquote evidence that says it was really deliberate and prejudiced, but if you look at the numbers, I'm just saying it doesn't look great. It doesn't look great on paper. And later on in 257, under Valerian's rule, I highlight the name for a reason, it seems familiar, it becomes deliberate. He passed so many decrees and laws through his Senate, saying that Christian clergy must perform sacrifices or face banishment to the Roman gods, and then the next year ordering execution of Christian leaders and senators if they don't perform these acts of worship, and then eventually even reaching to Roman matrons and civil servants and members of the imperial household, basically saying that if you do not abide to these laws and these religious rules, you'll be reduced to slavery. This didn't disinclude the high and well-off Christian kind of lords in the land either. So it, it was kind of a very interesting religious takeover that did not stop. It continued on to... the 
on and on and on. I mean, in history, it's happening now. But it continued on at the time in this rule until 303 or so, very, very dangerously and increasing constantly. A very awful, tense religious place to be in. Yeah, and we can see that that only sort of ramps up in Stannis' camp, right? With the lords, uh, we see it in the interactions that Justin Massey has uh, in those Asha chapters that we had just covered. And I really thought it was interesting that you used the word perform the sacrifices, that they would perform these rituals, and that's something we're going to talk about a little more, what it means to perform faith or belief. Mm-hmm. Davos, though, has uh, never really worshipped the gods in full, though he had made offerings to them before different battles. Yes, and also he would make offerings to the mother whenever Maria grew full of babu. You know, whenever she was pregnant. Preggers, as some people say. Yep. I don't know who those people are, but yes, as they do. Buns and ovenses. Uh (laughs) Sea monkeys. Little sea monkeys. The sea monkeys is how it starts. Oh, seaworth monkeys. That makes it almost cute. Davos feels ill watching the gods burn all the same, not just from the smoke. And he thinks that, you know, Creston could have stopped this, but he was struck down for his impiety, allegedly. And Davos (laughs) is like, no, it's because Creston fucking drank poison. <laughs> like, yeah. and he knows this because he saw Creston slip it into his own drink and Melisandre's, and he knows that Creston did it to free Stannis. Although Rolor ended up shielding Melisandre, and Davos is like, for that very moment, for that act, and like he's like, that's wild that she survived poison. Davos is like, I would have killed Melisandre in that moment, but he also is like, but you know who? What would happen to me? And he's like, if a maester. The Citadel couldn't do it. How the fuck am I going to do it? And we have this line here of, He was only a smuggler raised high, Davos of Flea Bottom, the Onion Knight. And we really see how, you know, here how Davos has faith in the system by his his way of thinking like, Oh, what the fuck can I do if a maester can't do something? And it's that system that, as we said, is burning down around him. But as we talk more about sacrifice, which, like we said, Big deal in this story. Not that, you know, anything has proven us right about that <laughs> in recent times. But um, it, it, it's part of this narrative, right? From the jump as we get the Azora High legend in this very chapter. And it's it's significant to me that Crescent was willing to sacrifice himself for this aim. Not, not necessarily someone else. I mean, obviously Melisandre, but he was willing to put himself on the line for it too. Oh, not just his child or his brother's child or... He did it to save his child because he was like, I love you like a son, Stannis. Stannis mm-hmm. is my baby now. And unpopular opinion, but man, if they don't got it together at 36, when are they going to get it together? I'm just saying. No, you're right. Ever? You're right. You're not I wrong. Mean, and here's the thing is Davos is 40. Yo, Yeah, he's young. As you and I have said, he's younger than his show counterpart, but he's 40 and he's out here trailing after a 36-year-old boy. I didn't even think about that. That's true. That's true. I'm just saying. I'm just thinking about it out loud right now. And like, yes, they have different lives and different raiments and different whatever. And Stannis was born to be a prince and a king and Davos was not. Uh, And I guess that's just how our lot is in life. I was not born to be a princess. But you know what? Life moves on. You're a queen. You're a queen, Chloe. Thanks, babe. (laughs) Thanks, babe. We do the best we can is what I'm saying. And Davos is doing the best he can in this system. 
Davos is recalling once Septon Barr had told him about the gods that are burning. These gods were carved from the ships that first carried over Targaryens to Dragonstone. I thought that was an interesting detail to call out in terms of the heritage of the Targaryens, right? In the Spain to an extent, the Targaryens converted. They turned to a new god, to the Seven, in terms of practicality and to give them a better shot at holding mm. the Seven Kingdoms. And now Stannis is turning from that and going for the Red God. For his last shot at the Seven Kingdoms. This is your la- one shot. Do not miss your... I don't know, actually, oh all God. the words okay, to that Okay, m sit down. Melisandre had told Stannis Relore would find the beauty of these gods pleasing, and they dragged them out at the castle gates. The maiden lay athwart the warrior, her arms widespread as if to embrace him. The mother seemed almost to shudder as the flames came licking up her face. A long sword had been thrust through her heart, and its leather grip was alive with flame. The father was on the bottom, the first to fall. Davos watched the hand of the stranger writhe and curl as the fingers blackened and fell away one by one, reduced to so much glowing charcoal. Whoa, a lot to unpack in this from his fingers falling away. The fingers are obviously not his fingers. It's the hand of the stranger, but they're falling away because, you know, Davos... No fingers. And there's so much Nisa Nisa foreshadowing, right? Which we later see come to fruition with the long sword through the mother's heart, leather alive with flame. The first to fall about the father makes me think of Ned, right? The father who died for our sins, who just fell, like we've said. Eddard 15, last book. And then you have the maiden who's laying athwart the warrior, embracing her. That kind of suggests submission, right? The maiden has submitted And then we get that vision of killing death when we hear the stranger avoided in most things in Westeros, right? How many prayers have we heard where they skip over the the patron saint of the stranger because he's just too scary to bring up? I thought this was interesting that they actually face death. They're killing death in front of us. And that is something that uh, seems is part of R'hllor's practices or abilities not necessarily R'hllor but something that the fire priests practice so it's a really interesting catch right there but yeah this this felt significant and I think you nailed it with the Ned thing but the rest um you know I, I was trying to figure it out and I think the maiden stuff is on it as well as the stranger thank you yeah no I mean Ned is really connecting to this right like this is very much the torch has been passed off so to speak and uh, we're going to talk about torches in a bit, I know, too, because there's a lot of fire imagery here. But some of these guys, during this whole ritual thing going on, they're not doing so great. It turns out all of the charred, smoky wood stuff has Lord Celtigar and Bar Emin coughing and turning gray. And the mere men that are present are swapping jokes. But... That's about it. Lord Valerian watches the king, not the flames. It's a it's a bleak display. Does not feel very spectacular as far as ceremonies go. Davos wonders what Lord Valerian could be thinking about while he stares at Stannis, but he knows I'll never be on the same level with that guy. He thinks that Lord Valerian has the ancient blood of Valyria, and he's provided brides for Targaryens, and that the other lords are similar. Davos had never felt included with their council, and he knows that they scorn his sons as well. But he thinks if he can endure this, his grandsons and, you know, their looks, maybe, 
Maybe our grandsons could be friends. They could play in the fields and joust together. They could wed each other. Maybe Black Betha could fly as high as the seahorse or the red crab. But then he thinks if Stannis wins his throne. If he didn't, Davos knows that everything that he owes, he owes to Stannis. Okay, I get it. Like, I do get it that his success is directly tied to Stannis bringing him up in the world and believing in him. But I know Davos wants his kids to get into good schools and have good food on the table. But do you think that Mario wanted a memory of him with the kids? You know, maybe being home, eating shitty food? Or does she think that he wanted a memory of him returning home from war with one kid left? Hope that meal tastes good, you know, because that's... Enjoy your stuffed duck, Maria, because that's all you're going to get, not sons. Yeah, and we actually haven't even seen Maria at all this entire book, so something I expect. Yeah, well, sorry, yeah, when I said this book, I meant all the books. Yeah, well, I expect (laughs) we'll see her one day, hopefully, maybe, but it, it is something to note. Stannis gave Davos knighthood a place of honor at his table, and a war galley instead of a smuggler's skiff. And, as Davos thinks, his sons were captains and oar masters now, and Devon was even a squire. And he's like, someday they'll even be knighted. They even had a small keep on Cape Wraith, with servants who call Maria Milady. And they have red deer (laughs) that they're allowed to hunt in their own woods, which, as you know, that's not always allowed. The poachers are the people that Jorah Mormont was like, but what if I just sold them? into slavery, captured them. Uh, Davos ended up having to give a few finger joints and some onions in order to follow this position, and he thinks that it was just. He says he flouted the king's laws his whole life, and Stannis earned his loyalty through this. Then he touches his finger bones and their bag on his neck, thinking that, you know, everyone needs a little luck (laughs) now and then. And he's like, Stannis most of all. Stannis needs some luck, and (laughs) <laughs> Everything that's going on here uh, between like Davos thinking that Stannis has sort of given him everything that he owes everything to Stannis, right, is I think really great setup for a line that Davos is going to deliver later on. The thick smoke wafts into men's eyes and mouth, which causes them to cough and curse and wipe their eyes. Davos thinks it's a taste of things to come, and that many and more would burn before the war was done. This is the worst bonfire ever. Um, I know, it's not fun. It's not fun. No one's drunk. Well, the only person that seems drunk is Melisandre, right? Because she's just like dancing around a fire, a huge ass fire. This is like yeah, what? that's the dream fire festival. This is the real fire festival. <laughs> oh and gosh. Melisandre is in all these scarlet satins, and her ruby is glimmering. And she's like, in ancient books of Asai, it's written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour. A warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azora High come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. So Stannis responds to her song, marches forward and takes the sword. He's assisted by squires, including Devin Seaworth, who puts a padded glove on the king's hand, the squires wear a cream doublet, a fiery heart on the breast. The other squire is Brian Faring, who is probably related to Godry the giant 
Slayer, who's fucking sucks. Clay has here, he's scum of the earth, but I would argue Clayton sucks. Yes, he's uh, Gilbert Faring's son. I believe he's Gilbert Faring's son. And it's interesting because it's very highlighted that they're wearing a cream doublet, which is totally like the acolytes are wearing white, uh, sets them apart, right? from Stannis's crew, who is usually garbed in red or black, and also kind of serves almost like an altar boy outfit in a way, hmm. right? Like, these are altar boys for Stannis right now, and also, they're dressed like sacrifices. They're dressed in a cream doublet like sacrifices. They're the sacrifices that their fathers sent forward, right? Led like sheep to serve this god, Stannis Baratheon, to gain political favor. Yeah, and that happens to a lot of kids in Westeros, unfortunately. The board system. <laughs> Patchface appears behind Davos. Ooh, uh, I don't know if I like that. Someone just appearing behind you and being like, bursting into song. He sings a song of under the sea. Smoke rises in bubbles. And flames burn green and blue and black. Patchface sang somewhere. I know. I know. Oh, oh, oh. I, I think that was too cheerful. I should have probably made that more ominous. Oh but. My God. I always hear because Shireen in the show, uh, Carrie Ingham, has that thing where she sings it in the credits and it's really chilling in the outro. Oh, I don't, I don't remember, remember which that. episode I don't it is. Remember that. Can you sing it for me? Yeah, it's like. Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. It's like the melody. I don't know, but she sings one of the Patch Face songs in one of the credits of the show. It might be on her death episode, actually, but it was very chilling. It was oh. like a. Wow. Uh, it was very good, though. It was such a, it was a nice little call out. I, I liked it a lot. But what this does remind me of is Blackwater, right? Which is looming over these chapters. It's really hard to remember that because of all of our time travel uh, that we do back and forth through the POVs. This is still looming over Davos. We're going to do Blackwater Electric Boogaloo 2 soon, where we do 837,000 hours of Blackwater with Davos Seaworth. I'm just kidding. That's a lot. And only with Sansa. But it's looming over all of his early Clash chapters. Uh, the Doom of Valyria seems to have followed the king at Dragonstone, mm. right? Like, you have this horrible ash, the pale green flames, everyone's coughing and sputtering, and their eyes are watering, and they're wiping their face off. It's not great. Not great things going on here. Yeah, everyone's just having a bad time. And it's gonna get worse. <laughs> like, why is this happening? And then Stannis plunges his arm into the fire. His teeth are clenched, you know, signature Stannis move. And he plunges his hand to remove the sword from the mother. As you'll remember, the mother's in the the sword is in the mother's breast, and then jade green flames swirl around the red steel. Queen Celise and the Queensmen take up the cry, A sword of fire! It burns! It burns! And, you know, I've said that about a lot of things and not ever about a sword of um, fire. Hmm. Hmm. I have questions. <laughs> Don't eat crawfish. And then, okay. Um, Melisandre. He'll Stannis then as Azor High come again and the sword as the Lightbringer and then call Stannis the Son of Fire. And ragged waves of shouts again, and Stannis's glove then catches on fire. He curses <laughs> beneath his breath and puts it out while Melisandre calls again to her lore, ending the prayers with Selyse and the Queen's men repeating their refrain that the night is dark and full of terrors. There's some pretty obvious symbolism when it comes to Stannis's glove. 
lighting on fire in the middle of this very important and stoic ritual, right? And we'll talk again about performances later. But this is uh, some really broad Christian imagery, as well as just other religious imagery of light and dark being symbolic. In Christianity especially, from the very first, fire and light are symbols, if not visible manifestations, some believe, of divine nature and divine presence. Light represents a purifying presence of God, and Christ is called the true light. And when he was transfigured, it's said that he personified glistening light and whiteness. Light's prominent in many other religions, like Judaism, Hindu rites, customs. Similarly, there's a big Roman influence and Greek influence as well. The Romans lit candles and lamps for their tutelary deities and held offerings to gods through light. The Greek held torches as incredibly sacred and ceremonial. Obviously now, the Olympics aren't a real thing anymore for us in our horrible current pandemic society. Rip. But, uh, I mean, the torch being passed exists for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, that's supposed to be so sacred. I mean, King of the Hill has done episodes about oh sacredness. King of the Hill. Just watched Hill. that last week. Yeah, it's a great episode. You should watch mm, it. Okay, but okay. I, it's, it's, it's a sacred thing. It's very sacred, very ceremonial. It's interesting that it's being highlighted. Highlighted here. I've never watched King of the Hill, but I know people love it, and I feel like I should give Emmett it a shot I loves sometime. it, so I watch it sometimes with him, and it's all right. I like it. Hmm. All right, all right. Um... We're talking about the King of Westeros here, though. Not King Who? of the Hill. Allegedly. <laughs> so he says. Davos wonders, he's like, should I be speaking the same words as everyone, too? And, they're, and, and, and chanting them? And he's like, do I owe that much to Stannis to chant the words for his new fire god? And then his shortened fingers twitch while Stannis peels off his own glove and then lets it fall to the ground. And this entire thing, the entire thing that's going on here as Melisandre tells everyone, all right, guys, this is what the prophecy is. We've set everything up for it to happen. And then Stannis <laughs> puts on the glove that's, that, that, that's fireproof, right? And it all becomes this huge performance, right? And it's like they're following what they think is supposed to be in the prophecy. They think that if they do it, right, that the prophecy is a recipe, and that if they follow what it says, they can make it happen. And then Stannis will suddenly become Azor High. It's him trying to step into that role by doing the actions of playing the part. And I think that starts to become something really important to A Song of Ice and Fire, especially when you get like that the slipperiness of identity, which we've talked about uh, more in depth. Actually, I think, what was it, a year ago? Two years ago? Around this time of year for October, mm -hmm. where we talk about identity in A Song of Ice and Fire, and it makes me think of those lines in the Mercy chapter where Arya uh, thinks back mm. to moments, I think actually, is it in this book, right? Where she's like, you know your lines and I know mine. And Stannis knows the lines for being a Zora High, but that doesn't actually make him Azor Ahai. Arya might know the lines, but that doesn't actually make her mercy. In that moment, knowing the lines, she's performing it and, and doing all that. When Just because you step into and play a character mm -hmm. doesn't make you that character. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about the trappings of power in Melisandre. Our friends at Nauticus have talked about how Melisandre uses that here uh, in order to to bequeath Stannis with the Azor High prophecy, 
right? But that doesn't necessarily make him that. And you can see how what a farce it is because it's not like anything's at risk. He's preparing for it to the utmost. He doesn't even get burned. He doesn't even take the risk of getting burned. And that's what makes it magical, right? If he were to reach into the fire and come out unscathed. And we know that because we've seen that action already happen with Daenerys. And we're like, wow, that was a fucking miracle. Amazing. And that Stannis can't even pull that off. It begins to cast doubt, especially for the reader, and especially with all this idea of prophecy. It's like the more you try to follow it to the recipe, as Cersei does, as Stannis does, the more it backfires. Yeah, it backfires. It doesn't really work. Literally. Yeah. As we see at at the Blackwater, at Blackwater Bay, it literally backfires on Stannis. Blackfires. Right. Oh wait, no, that's Hit different. Blackwater. No, they were they were a whole family. My bad. <laughs> I thought I had something. Well, to what you're saying, at this point in the ceremony, as we go along, the gods become unrecognizable. They're just scarred by fire. The smith's head has rolled into the ashes, and Melisandre begins to sing like the tides of the sea. Davos says, and Stannis listens in silence. Lightbringer glows hot in the ground, but the flames begin to dwindle and die around it. Only charwood remains of the gods as Mel finishes singing, and the king loses patience, taking Solice by the elbow to go back to the castle. Lightbringer remains in the shore. Some linger to watch the squires clean up, and the red sword of heroes is now burnt and blackened. The lords fall silent when they see Davos look at them. He thinks they'd kill me in an instant if Stannis fell. And this makes me think of uh, one of the other lines where Varys asks, where does power reside? And for Davos, his power is very much tied up in Stannis. He doesn't have wealth. He doesn't have the old blood to buoy him. It's all from Stannis acknowledging what he's done. And we know that Davos, of course, believes in Stannis, but it does kind of raise questions in this chapter that, sure, these get answered in later later chapters, especially in A Storm of Swords, but, like, what is it really that Davos believes in? Like, here you kind of question, like, does he believe in Stannis' values or that Stannis has valued him? It really does seem to be the latter as we keep moving through this. Davos was neither Kingsman, nor was he the ambitious Queensman that we see who win their favor from Lady, actually, sorry, Davos corrects his thoughts, Queen, Selyse, through her lore. Davos and his sons end up departing the scene, they make their way to the shore and the waiting ships, and Davos praises Devon's hard work during the ceremony to his other sons. Allard and Dale ask why Stannis' sigil is different than the regular Baratheon crest, and he explains to them that a man can choose more than one badge. Dale smiles, saying, like a black ship in an onion, Father, but Allard is less happy. He says the others take our onion and that flaming heart, and then he quips it was an ill thing to burn the seven. Davos is kind of surprised. He's like, ah, you've become very pious, my rash son. When did a smuggler's son learn about the gods? Allard responds, I'm a knight's son, and if you don't remember that, why should they? Yeah, you tell him, Allard. You tell your dad. You give him that confidence. Yeah. <laughs> We're seaworths, dad. We're seaworthy. Oh, I, I don't wish... need no Azora High. There's a there's an AU somewhere where they're all live and all the sons are like, We're seaworthy! And then they like do a little, I don't know, huddle. Wow, I made myself sad. Why did I say that? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Okay, um, so between how the show portrayed things and that for a majority of the books, like Davos, as you said earlier this episode, doesn't really interact uh, with his sons as much, uh, you know, statistically, because a lot of them die and then he's away from a lot of them. (laughs) 
<laughs> whatever oh. um yeah now what did i do why am i sad now um it is refreshing and nice to see these interactions with davos and his sons you really get to see like they have a they have a good rapport his sons feel comfortable speaking up to him and i think it really drives home davos's own fatherhood and therefore what he's going to lose and in that sense kind of punctuates stannis's own storyline but that sense of self that Allard talks about is, I think, really interesting as, again, those lines of identity start getting blurred because, you know, what does it mean to be a knight's son? What does it mean to have king's blood, right? To be Elaine or to be Reek or to be Mer- Mercy. And as Allard says, if you don't remember who you are, how the fuck will anyone else remember who you are? And I think that comes back to that idea of performance and roles. And especially, you know, is something that Davos keeps thinking about is like where he stands in terms of the other lords. And if you don't remember your knight's son, how will anyone else? And it comes back to this idea of class and consenting to the current system. Because if there's no one there to perform being the lower class, how are the rest of these nobles around Davos going to know that they're noble and that they're so lordly? Yeah, and Davos kind of reiterates, he's like, yeah, I'm a knight, but... You know, we were we were given this stuff, so you gotta stop poking your nose in. Stay humble, son. Like, if you don't stay humble and stop sticking your nose in places it's not supposed to belong, you won't be a knight. He says they can't question Stannis. They just have to do his bidding. So then Dale immediately changes the subject to further questioning Stannis because he talks about how they have water casks for the trips they have to go on. A cheap green pine are what the casks are made of, and both of them complain our water's going to rot and spoil in that wood through the journeys we have, through the lengths of journeys we have to go on. They comment then that the, the Queen's men laid claim to all of the seasoned wood for their ships first. Much like Stannis's camp when he's in the north with food in Ash's POV, as we just covered, that led to people eating other people, by the way, since they Woo! were out of resources. We're already seeing right now that Stannis' teams are reallocating resources dependent upon class and wealth. Mm -hmm. Stannis is definitely more likable in this chapter than he has been recently in our other POVs, in my opinion, especially toward the end of the chapter, as we're going to get to eventually, because he even kind of snorts and cracks an almost joke with Davos, right? He even is like, haha, here's an almost joke, Davos. I like you enough to half smile at you. But again, we're seeing this attitude that is going to be the end of this camp, that the resources being distributed are uh, not being distributed equally. All lives are not equal to Stannis, that's for sure. Yeah, and he he's not willing to do anything to fix that and reinforces it. And But Davos does promise his sons, he's like, all right, I'll speak to the king thinking that it's better if I ask him because his sons, bless them, are, he's like, they're lowborn like I am, but they don't know how to speak to lords. And I mean, Davos's sons, right? They grew up a little different actually from Davos, right? Davos's sons were not taught as Davos was to submit to other people's station because for a portion of their lives, so quite a few of them have grown up thinking that they're knight sons and therefore feel entitled to better, which I think everyone should feel entitled to at least like, a living wage, you know, but it means that they do not know how to perform for the nobility around them. Yeah, and not to uh, be contrarian to you, but I do want to provide, maybe this is just counter-argument, but since we know that the Queen's men are mostly assholes who have no manners, right? I would say we canonically can say that's a true thing, that the majority of the Queen's men are 
shifty little buggers and their assholes. What if his sons would actually fit in fine if he let them try? Because here's the deal. He's afraid to let them go. What if his sons could do fine on their own? Later he says they're going to have grandsons who joust with the other grandsons, but how are they going to do that? When is Davos going to let them do that and let them try to do that? It's very Ned with Sansa and Arya in King's Landing. When are they going to do the things you're tasking them with if you don't inform them, train them, and then set them free? We have characters like Marjorie, who is set free upon the capital to go work her wiles upon Joffrey. But if you don't teach them, how are they going to learn? Yeah, it's um, I, it sounds to me like you're saying that Davos is Marlin in Finding Nemo. <laughs> and yeah. his kids are Nemo. And I think that there's merit to that. Um, but, you know, Sansa and Arya and Marjorie, they were like top of the class ladder. You know, whereas I, I worry, and I think Davos's worry is, you know, I've recently just started watching Ugly Betty. Oh my god. <laughs> I think the worry that he has is that his kids are going to be treated the way that Betty's treated when she starts working at mm-hmm. at Mode Magazine. That's that's the insight. That's a good insight. Thank, that's thank a good you. insight. Yeah, he's afraid, right? Like, he wants to protect them, but... He's also asking them to step forward into this political world for him and help him have a legacy. And it's a it's a harrowing task. Yeah. It's like, will they get bullied out of it or not? But who knows? Yeah. The port is crowded. Inns are packed with soldiers drinking and looking for a companion. Although it's in vain since all the sex workers were banned on Stannis' islands. He's like, if I'm not getting any, no one's getting any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ships and galleys and cogs line the area, the largest vessels taking the most land. Fury, Stannis' flagship, sits between Lord Stefan and the Steg in the sea. Beside it are Lord Valerian's Pride of Driftmark, Celtigar's Red Claw and Swordfish, and at anchor Salador San's Great Valerian. Two dozen smaller Lysine galleys are along with it, then there's Black Betha. Wraith and Lady Maria, they all share some mooring space down by a weathered inn with a half dozen other small galleys. Yes, for now, Davos has a thirst and decides to leave his sons to their galleys, heading to the inn where Salador San is introduced. We get this line that out front squatted a waist-high gargoyle, so eroded by rain and salt that his features were all but obliterated. He and Davos were old friends, though. I like the idea of the gargoyle, especially with a lot of the kind of Roman different references we've been talking about with this plot together. And gargoyles were popular in Roman cathedrals, right? Most commonly used for two purposes, to install a pipe within and redirect water from rain and to ward off evil spirits. Some did see them as demons. I guess that's an interpretation uh, as evil. But when you look at Notre Dame, for example, they have no fewer than 5,000 gargoyles. And as we know, The Hunchback of Notre Dame's Hellfire, a song from its soundtrack, is actually written about Stannis. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's, it's not. a joke. But it's uh, it's the best Disney song. Um, <laughs> Davos pats the gargoyle for luck and then heads in, beckoned over by the Lysini. Solidor San, who's eating grapes. And I know it's like a, a whole thing, probably, about patting gargoyles. Um, and as you said, they're they're 
quite significant culturally, but I do love that Davos just pats the gargoyle because it just feels super cute to me. And I also used to pet statues and random things um, before it became unsafe to touch anything. <laughs> but also, I, I realized later on, I was like, oh, it's like a thing. He's superstitious, like how he always touches his finger bones. He pats bones, gargoyles yeah. for good luck. But um, now I'm wondering, is this is this foreshadowing regarding the gargoyle being so eroded by rain and salt that his features were all but obliterated for Tyrion. I know that... As a twisted, stunted little gargoyle. Yeah, like, I know it's not great to call him a gargoyle, but he's described as such, and he's described as grotesque, and a synonym for a gargoyle is actually the term grotesque when it comes to, like, those architectural ornaments. So It's really weird you say that, too, because another thing that is kind of noted as a gargoyle in mythology is a chimera. Mm. And Tyrion is kind of a chimera of a person, as we discussed, like the whole he was born with a tail thing that's told about him. Yeah, I mean, like we've seen him later on in the Blackwater, right? He ends up getting um, physically injured on his face and that that alters his uh, features and appearance. He, he's not completely obliterated, but I'm also like, is that part of his identity, right? Uh, him undergoing so much that he becomes unrecognizable as a Lannister or I don't know, yeah. something like that. I like the idea of that as like an insert that he and Davos were old friends, though. I mean, we see a lot with Asha who fought Morgan Little on the field and then after he apologized to her for calling her a crude, crass name, a cunt, and said, hey, no, no, no hurt feelings. It was just battle. And we see people like Tyrion's clan members from the Vale, for example, who really honor battle. And we see the Northern clans who are like, battle is really honorable as well. So I don't know the fact that Tyrion kind of sticks it out-ish as much as he can during the Blackwater. And Salador here in a minute is about to speak a lot about how, oh, King's Landing is shit. I didn't really go on about it in this, but he, he basically says, like, Tyrion sucks. We're going to be able to get a fast one over Tyrion. Fuck Tyrion. And Tyrion actually... Fucks them. Gives a good battle. Yeah he, yeah, he kind of, like, shows it up at the Blackwater. He does the chain. He's like, here's what we're doing. Um, Tyrion holds it down until Tywin can show up, man. I'll give him that. I will. Yeah. I mean, Tyrion does a great job there. Salador San offers Davos some of his sweet grapes, and we get our first look at Salador. Sleek and smiling and flamboyant, in cloth of silver with long, dagged sleeves that reach the ground and his white curls are topped with a peacock-feathered green cap. Very flamboyant, very lyceny. Before Davos's knighthood, Salador San and Davos traded many cargoes, many currencies. San was a smuggler, a trader, a notorious pirate, a banker, and a self-styled prince of the narrow sea. Davos thinks when a pirate grows rich enough, they make him a prince. Salador San hmm. is, of course, our... Uh, our Daemon Targaryen-esque, our Valerian-esque character in this story, right? Of the, the Prince of the Narrow Sea. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Before Orain, at least. Before we get Orain waters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of stands out, especially now that we have fire and blood. Davos is surprised, though, that Salador didn't go to the burning... Salador was like, I don't know, I've seen enough burnings on lace <laughs> in Relor's great temple there. He's like, it's not that cool. They're like always burning something or someone. He's like, whatever. And he says that the fires bore him, and soon he's like, they'll bore Stannis too, hopefully. And they don't. We'll come back to that. Uh, Salador, though, is able to speak freely, unconcerned with listeners. He just eats grapes and flicks seeds off his <laughs> face. What the fuck? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> 
Salador waggles more grapes in front of Davos, telling him news of King's Landing. He's like, Tywin has sent Tyr Tyrion to be hanged. Tyrion has chased off Janos Slint, Jaslyn Bywater, installed in his place. The city's defenses, though strong, are missing men to defend them. And we have this line of, he picked the grape and squeezed it between thumb and forefinger until the skin burst. Juice ran down between his fingers. And I don't know if this is supposed to be like something that uh, evokes the Garden of Eden and the temptation there. Grapes, of course, are associated with wine, and, and maybe there's something there also with, like, the blood of Christ and this purity. Because on one... Mm. I mean, they're two different concepts, right? Tempting Davos, but there's also uh, a sort of, like, you know, take the grapes that Solidor is offering, keep your moral purity, as opposed to, like, this crazy path you're going to go down with Stannis, you know? There, there's okay. two different ways to look at this, and so I don't think it's just one. I don't know that it really means anything. But also, it makes me think of, like, an association with wine... Those the, those grapes, you know, Salador's son enjoys pleasures. There's there's that joy there, right? That indulgence. I'd also add that the fact that he squeezes it until the skin bursts feels like a metaphor for King's Landing's current state, right? That mm. he's saying that things are pretty bad in King's Landing, so if we apply enough pressure, ah. it will explode. Which, as we know, does not happen Yet. Yet. But it does explode with wildfire. So again, I do feel that the Blackwater is hanging over us once more in this moment. That it is. And Salador, as you're saying, right, he's like, you know, we could just sail. We could just sail and take the city by Evenfall tomorrow if we were granted the wind. And then we'll address the dwarf in Motley. He's very, <laughs> he's very interested in this. He really hates the Lannisters, which, like, I understand. I totally get you, man. And, like, same. I get it. But damn really hates them and there's this line the line he says is grant us wind to fill our sails and it actually reminds me of Nymeria Sand's use of House Fowler's words when she's like let me soar uncle and I'll take care of all of it I just thought that was uh, unrelated but cool language very cool Salador also hopes going back to the Lannisters that Stannis would gift him Queen Cersei since he'd been away from his wives while serving Stannis Davos is like, you don't have wives, you have concubines, and you've been paid. And Salador's like, not really, I've been paid in promises, like a paper shield, and word on paper is not gold. I mean, I'd be anxious too if I were Salador's son. And this, Paper's nothing! Yeah, a, not if it's not going to be honored, especially by like, what, five, four out of five kings, right? Yeah. And a, this scene kind of makes me think of Tyrion later on making promises to Brown and Plum and a couple of the other sellsword companies being like, mm. yeah, it's fine. You know, here, I wrote you a piece of paper, we made an agreement, and I totally have the gold. <laughs> we just have to go take Casterly Rock first. It's fine. It's fine. Tyrion doing that with anyone throughout the entire that's series true. challenge. Honestly, the veil. Like, Tyrion just like, listen, I true. have money. Daddy has money, okay? And the daddy I hate. He promises the entire veil, too. That's a big ass yeah. promise. For something your daddy does not have at all. Daddy's like, dead. Daddy <laughs> exactly. You don't have it. This is the one thing you guys do not have. The veil is like totally in revolt from anything the Iron Throne wants of it. They're like, oh, sorry, we lost your mail. It'll be five to seven business years, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's God. how I feel about these books. Um... <sighs> so Davos says no man in the Seven Kingdoms is more honorable than Stannis, and Salador will be paid when they take the treasury. Salador's like, we could take the city now, but Davos doesn't think they could hold it, with Tywin and Renly gathering their hosts. 
Salador agrees, saying that Kang, or Lord, whatever you call him, Renly, is stirring himself and his armies. And he remembers, of course, that here Renly is Lord Renly, and pardons himself, saying that so many kings, my tongue grows weary of the word. He brings news that Renly marches up the Road of Roses, bringing his bride with him and a whole set of armed roses. Salador says, yes, I've told the king. He didn't really seem grateful for the information I presented him, but I did tell him. And then he brings Davos a pretty hot next take, or cold, I guess now, that the sword that Stannis used was not Lightbringer. This leaves Davos pretty uneasy. Salador hadn't been at the burning, but somehow he knew the sword and he knew that it was burnt. So we could dig into this, but also I think the symbolism is pretty obvious, so I'm not gonna... Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the sword's a fake. And that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> Which also means... Yeah. <clears throat> Davos corrects Salador saying, no, 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 the sword is burning, and Salador is like, no. No, dude, it was burnt. And then he regales us with the forging of Lightbringer. It was a time when darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, the hero must have been a hero's blade, oh, like none other that ever been. And so for thirty days and thirty nights, Azora High labored sleepless in the temple, forging a blade in the sacred fires. Heat and hammer and fold, heat and hammer and fold, oh yes, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into water to temper the steel, it burst asunder. Being a hero, it was not for him to shrug and go in search of excellent grapes such as these, so again he began. The second time, it took him fifty days and fifty nights, and this sword seemed even finer than the first. Azora High captured a lion to temper the blade, plunging it through the beast's red heart, but once more the steel shattered and split. Great was his woe and great was his sorrow then, for he know what he must do. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nisa, Nisa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why, I cannot say, and Azora High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. Yes. So I don't think I need to dig into this too much, but the whole forging of Lightbringer is, of course, a little reminiscent of the ecstasy of St. Teresa, which I'm sure you've probably all seen the statue where St. Teresa is uh, in ecstasy and it, it depicts the time that an angel stabs her with a spear and she's like, this is fucking awesome. And I'm like, girl, but is it? And so, <laughs> so there's some of those vibes here, right? But, you know, in general, I kind of forgot that we got this whole exposition from Salador's son and not Melisandre. And I think it raises those questions, of course, of heroes and sacrifices, which is like the entirety of what we're going to discuss throughout all these chapters. So whatever, we'll we'll save that for everything else. Um, but it's also worth noting that, in my opinion, San knows it. San knows the story pretty well and speaks of it 
and speaks of how in the temples of Lys, and that, as we know, it's in many of the free cities because a lot of them are trade cities, right? It's it's a popular religion across Essos, and this religion that seems novel right now to a lot of the characters in Westeros is actually quite well known by many in Essos, and I think that really drives home the kind of impact that this is going to have for Danny's storyline when they speak of her as potentially Azora Hyraborn, besides the fact that everyone fucking knows this religion in Essos. Yeah, and even rereading it, the tale has that threefold structure that George kind of mm. likes, you know? And yeah. I didn't really notice that. I don't know. I just don't really pay attention because it's like, I just don't feel like there's some sort of big mystery to unearth. It's in front of us. I digress. Um, but the threefold structure, too, of the three times he tried. Yes. And the third time is when he finally made the big one. Uh, and that feels really significant as well for Stannis with his three times he tried. Yeah. He asks if Davos understands him now. Salador says that if that sword is just a burnt sword, we should be glad. Too much light can hurt the eyes, my friend, and fire burns. Hmm. Finishing his last grape, Salador says, are we going to set sail soon? Davos says when his god wills it, and Salador notices the difference. Davos has not taken R'hllor as his god. Davos responds, and when he responds, he thinks, The inn is crowded, and you are not Salador's son. Be careful how you answer. He says Stannis is his god, and Salador says he'll remember that, excusing himself to his beautiful dinner on his Valyrian. Minced lamb with pepper and roasted gold stuffed with mushrooms, fennel, and onion. It is rude that Solidar Son did not invite Davos. Um, it, it's kind of a dick move. Yeah, sounds like an amazing dinner. Uh, that line seems... I, I, I just really like that line, and that's the one that I was talking about earlier, The where Davos says, King Stannis is my god, he made me and blessed me with his trust. And I think that really just closes the loop on all that ruminating that Davos had early on this early on in this chapter of what he's gained since being raised in knighthood by Stannis, as opposed to like living in Flea Bottom, Davos has been given a taste of that Eden, of this providence, right? By being entered into Stannis's circle where he, the needs of his wife and himself are met, the needs of his children are met, and all he had to do was pay the price of a few fingers. After all, like, it sounds like every god in the story needs a blood sacrifice, so for him it's that, and that's Davos's sacrifice to the cause of Stannis. It's his performance of justice and allowing Stannis to do that and with faith becoming more important again to the mechanics of a song of ice and fire even here it's as it, it's part of that power and faith and godhood these all get mashed together with the human rulers like where when it comes to power and being a god and a ruler and this all gets thrown into the mix with the lines between worship and duty and obedience from others yeah, and we'll talk in a bit about what power is to these two separate people, but power for Davos is very different than power from Stannis, and the struggles that Davos has faced throughout his life are a lot different than the struggles Stannis has faced in many ways, right? Yeah. Salador promises that they'll feast together in the Red Keep soon while the dwarf sings a jolly tune. Hopefully not the reigns of Castamere. And Salador asks him, Oh, by the way, can you remind your god that he owes me 30,000 gold dragons? And uh, by the way, he should have sold the gods he burnt. They would have made a killing in lease. They would have made so much money in Pentos, in Mir. He then reminds Davos all of this debt can be forgiven as long as he is granted Queen Cersei for the night. 
Yeah, Cersei, like many women in the story, is being seen as a coin or spoils of war again. And to his credit, Stannis doesn't seem to entertain this request, just as he does not entertain selling Asha off, as it seems, like, um, when she's a prisoner. Though he's all like, we should do this to Val. But anyways. <laughs> right. But that's That's, that's different. different. Her life is worth less than a real person's life because she's a free folk. Well, also, it's not just selling her as a spoil of war for the night. It's He's trying to do mm-hmm. the alliance political thing. But it's also, a game. Yeah. But also, is he... Okay, did the show try to mix Solidor San with what they eventually made Euron? Because Euron in the books is not interested in Cersei for a night, but Solidor San won't shut the fuck up about it, but Euron's, like, all about it in the show. I don't know. It's I don't a thought. know that we should spend our energy ever that's trying true. to qualify what the fuck they did with Euron in the show. Well, <laughs> fair. I think that's absolutely fair. Spent, my friend. You're right. I don't think we're gonna understand it. You know, I think it's best to just let it fade away because there's stuff like the books here that we can analyze and understand. And as Salador does swagger away, Davos sits and thinks and drinks an ale, and he ponders and remembers. Another flaming sword he once saw, which was Thoros of Mir's sword from Joffrey's name day tourney. This is the infamous tourney before A Song of Ice and Fire. Not the one Sans is about to go to, right? This is a little bit before A Song of Ice and Fire. He had attended it about a year prior, and his blade, Thoros of Mir's blade, was writhing with pale green flames. In the end, the flame went out, and Bronzion Royce, who was fighting him at the time, plummeted his common mace into Thoros. I thought that was interesting because it has to be old. Bronzion Royce was in the capital. How weird is that? John Aaron was still alive. The tourney was uh. probably six to ten months before A Game of Thrones. And now, Yon wouldn't even come near the capital. It's a great connection, though, because the imagery of Yon Royce, who's fighting against Thoros with these flames surrounding him, almost reminds me of Waymore Royce versus the others, his son. Sir Waymore Rice had found his fury. For Robert, he shouted, and he came up snarling, lifting the frost-covered longsword with both hands, swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. Come to think of it, Bronzion Royce has quite a tourney record of defeats and wins. He won the melee at Harrenhal, though he was defeated by Rhaegar. He participated in tourney at Lannisport, defeated by Lord Jorah Mormont, and of course the defeat from Thoros of Mir above. I think he might be kind of one of those ascending extras to watch. I'm guessing he'll be in the Eight-Wing Knights Hall tourney over in the Vale. And again, he's another representation of that father-son impressing kind of thing going on in this chapter. Sons doing what their fathers plan for them to try to win their honor, their pride, and help secure the family name. Waymar Royce fought truly until the others took him. Davos's sons serve their raiments and doing as the king bid them. That's that's the big deal here. We see it repeated in the next chapter with Theon's return to the Iron Islands, where his only hope is pleasing his father, his real father, the conflict, right? Not Ned, the real dad. Yeah, and I think that's a great parallel. And I think that we see Stannis trying to please someone. Maybe not his father, but... But his brother, and you know what? You're not going to get it because he's dead. <laughs> and then we have this line here from Davos where he ruminates on what 
Sansa and thinks, A true sort of fire, now, that would be a wonder to behold, yet at such a cost. When he thought of Nisa Nisa, it was his own Maria he pictured, a good-natured, plump woman with sagging breasts and a kindly smile, the best woman in the world. He tried to picture himself driving a sword through her and shuddered. I am not made of the stuff of heroes, he decided. That was the price of a magic sword. It was more than he cared to pay. Amen. 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 Hallelujah, brother. Wow. When Davos leaves, he pets the gargoyle for luck again, and he heads toward Black Betha. At dark, his son Devon brings summons from the king to attend him in the chamber of the painted table. Davos feels uneasy, although he's proud of his son's squire raiment. He wonders if it's time to set sail after all. He knows that Salador San is not the only captain eager to leave for King's Landing, but Davos knows that they have to be patient. They have no hope of victory if they go right now, because there are too few people to take the city. Davos said as much to Maester Crescent when he came back to Dragonstone. He finds his way up to the Stone Drum, a dozen highborn knights and bannermen leaving the chamber. Celtigar and Valerian curtly nod at him. The rest ignore him, except for Queen Selyse's uncle Axel. Uh, I appreciate that Monford and Celtigar nodded him, and I'm realizing Granite Fire and Blood wasn't written yet, but is it because they have that history where technically a lot of all the Valerians right now of this house are descended from bastards? Mm-hmm. So. True. We got. Axel and his prominent florent features, which are exactly that. They're prominent. He's got big ears. He's a keg of a man. Thick arms and legs. Lots of ear hair. Imagine if that's your family trait. Ear hair! Axel had been Castellan of Dragonstone for a decade, but had been the staunchest queensman lately. He exchanged pleasantries with Davos, saying that the false gods burned with a merry light today, and Davos is like, like yeah, I, I, I agree, they did burn bright, That that's how fire works! Psycho. Yeah, Davos is like, I do not trust this man at all. Talk about red flags. Huh. And he's like, House Florent has declared for Renly after all, and then Axel just carries on, saying that Melisandre says that faithful servants can see future in the flames, and Axel's like, I saw a dozen beautiful maidens in yellow silk spinning and twisting before a great king. He's like, this is a true vision of Stannis' future glory. I'm like, bruh. First of all, Stannis hates women. Yeah. Their presence. He just doesn't like it virgins i don't know man i don't know if he wants them near him either uh <laughs> i'm just saying like that's and, and davos thinks that right he's like mm, no uh and it, it's interesting because axel is absolutely feeling him out here like it's very obvious that the things he's saying he's like oh interesting it's the onion knight i want to see what kind of information i can use against him and ruin his life so that i can secure my position by the king yeah and davos is like what is happening uh, he's like maybe this is the real reason why I don't want my sons talking to the lords because they're fucking emotionally draining um, <laughs> the description that Axel has of the fire the beautiful maidens in yellow silk and the, you end up getting this language of that, that personification of fire and it almost sounds plausible that maybe Axel saw this because it is reminiscent of the personification of the fire and how Danny describes seeing it during Drogo's funeral pyre. Mm. So, who knows? 
Or maybe fire just looks like that. I mean, clearly George seems to think fire looks like that, and <laughs> none of us are fucking magic. You know, I, I like I the too. touch that it's a yellow silk, too, trying yeah. to embody the Baratheon gold. That was something I yeah. thought was interesting, that it's, you know, he says it kind of as a suck-ass, obviously, like, brown-nosing, but... Um. <laughs> it's like, yeah, fire is that color. <laughs> Congratulations, Axel. And that's pretty much what Davos says. He's like, yep, I didn't see anything. My eyes hurt and were watering <laughs> because of the smoke, honestly. And he pardons himself and he's like, I gotta go talk to the king where Maester Pylos is assisting Stannis. Stacks of paper are in front of them. Poor and Pylos. Stannis asks Davos, read this letter. But Davos admits, um, Stannis, if you recall, I cannot read. Maps, charts, I can read, and his sons can read, right? Devon and Stefan and even young Stannis, gross, learned to read already, but Davos unfortunately could not. You can see Davos here begin trying to play that game to curry favor with Stefan and Stannis, right? Uh, his sons, which are obviously both named after Baratheons, and we see a bunch of people do this. The phrase fucking love doing this. But he at least had the sons not to name one Robert. I'm going to just say that because Davos is emotionally intelligent. <laughs> as we see throughout this chapter uh, uh, even Asha doesn't have the good enough sense to stay away from it yeah she's like fuck instead Stannis has Pylos read Davos the letter the letter goes I King Stannis think everyone is a duty face the end I'm just kidding but it basically is it is the actual letter <clears throat> <laughs> all men know me for the true born son of Stefan Baratheon lord of storms and by his lady wife Cassandra of house Estermont I declare upon the honor of my house that my beloved brother Robert our late king left no true born issue of his body the boy Joffrey the boy Tommen and the girl Marcella being abominations born of incest between Cersei Lannister and her brother Jamie the Kingslayer by right of birth and blood, I do this day lay claim to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Let all true men declare their loyalty. Done in the light of the Lord, under the sign and seat of Stannis of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Roinar, and the First Men, and Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. The parchment rustled softly as Pylos laid it down. Make it Sir Jamie the Kingslayer henceforth. Stannis said, frowning. Whatever else the man may be, he remains a knight. I don't know what we ought to call Robert, my beloved brother, either. He loved me no more than he had to, nor I him. A harmless courtesy, your grace, Pylos said. A lie. Take it out. <sighs> Thanks, I grit my teeth for that, so uh... I thought it was important. I love that everyone tries to tone check Stannis, but Stannis is like, no, I refuse to be tone checked. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. But like, in a what, dude, bruh. And I, it's kind of fun. It's funny for me because like Stannis is so salty. He's like, I wanted to be beloved. That's the subtext. He's like, we were not beloved. In, but deep down, he's like, I want to be loved. He's like, I was never beloved. I would have known had Robert beloved me. I know that that's like the appeal of Stannis for people, and I understand yeah. that I'm mocking this, but everyone, I mean, he wants to be liked. We don't have siblings. That's the subtext. I mean, I want to be liked too, but I don't really, you know, want to burn people about it. I don't know. God. So I burn people to make Davos. enemies. <laughs> Stannis tells Davos they have 117 ravens. 
He does some raven math. He says, I mean to send off all of them with copies of this letter. I expect 100 of them to get to their destinations, and many of them will be fed to the fire and not spoken of, but I will try to get the truth out there. And so Stannis says he needs Davos and his sons to sail north, sail around the country. Dale goes south past Cape Wrath. Davos goes north to Goldtown in the Fingers. And, of course, his last son, who, may I add, Stannis calls him his other son. He's like, and your other one, too. He's going to go. They will all go off and deliver these messages. But Pylos and Davos are concerned. They're like, many men won't be able to read this if you want them everywhere. And Pylos suggests, hey, what if we read it aloud? Stannis is like, these aren't very nice words, so maybe we don't want to just start yelling them from every square. And Davos is like, what if we equipped them with knights for protection? We send a knight with each. So Stannis agrees. He's like, yeah, employ all the tricks, get it out there. If you run out of letters, capture some septons, no big deal, and make them copy more. They come to a plan. Allard will sail the Lady Maria ship to Bravos and the other free cities. Note... Stannis actually calls him your other son. Yep. Hmm. The other one. <laughs> your other son. Your other other son. There's like a bazillion of them, Stannis. I mean, on one hand, it's hard to remember all their names, but on the other, I'm like, which other one? Anyways, he's like, go deliver the message there. And then Stavos, Stavos, fuck. And wow. then Stavos is like, you can tell them, Davos thought, but will they believe? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people believing what they want, right? The power resides where people believe what they believe what serves them from Ned having a bastard to Stannis, uh, right? And then when it comes to the Lannister incest or Ned being a traitor or when people are like, yeah, Danny's a witch bathing in blood. Or if someone tells them that Aegon is the true king, right? It, people yeah. believe what they want, what serves their own narratives and idea of life. And it's not so different from what Stannis is doing with his new Proudwing. Yeah, he's just hoping the right people believe in his cause. And Pylos is dismissed from writing letters. And Stannis is like, Davos, what are you holding back? Because it's obvious you're not saying something. And Davos is like, yeah, do you remember that maester that was here until oh, a couple days ago when he died of poison? I'm kind of mourning for Maester Crescent, says Davos, and I think that you, Stannis, should give him your personal take on this mess. Stannis is like, look, I didn't want Crescent to die. I didn't want him to show up to this feast. I wanted him to have a couple happy years of comfort, but he died, and Pylos is more than equipped to serve. Davos is like, hmm, I wonder what your lords make of this letter, Stannis, and Stannis snorts. He says that Celtigar called it admirable, but... Celtigar also would, like, sniff Stannis' shit for fun, so who cares? The others agreed, because they're geese, they're sheeple. Except for Lord Valerian, who says, Steel is going to decide this, not words. There's always one skeptic in Stannis' camp that everyone's like, what the fuck? But here I am, unfurling my house Valerian banners. (laughs) I love the skeptics in Stannis' camp, as you can tell. Stannis wants to know what Davos thought, and Davos says, you know what, his words, they're they are blunt, and they're strong, and true, and also you have no proof. And Stannis <laughs> is like, of course I have proof, I have this boy, Edric Storm, Robert's bastard, as an example, he was fathered in his wedding bed. He is the very image of Robert, and if men saw him, they would look at Joffrey and Tommen in a different light. And I'm like, you need kind of more than one kid. Now, this is a big claim, but that's just me, that's just me personally. Also, you can't, like, take him all over the country and prove it. Like, <laughs> yeah. How are you going to prove it? There's no... There's only one like of that. him. Like, 
the, the art, like the miniatures that you get in a cameo necklace with Marjorie from Renly to Robert is one thing, but like that seems to be the extent. Yeah, and everyone can be like, you just painted him to look like Robert, but it's just like, you need you need a book like Ned has to go like further back in history, mm-hmm. but all he's got is like, he's gonna what? Be like, the boy! <laughs> and- Maybe he should have answered some summons, you know what I mean? Oh. Instead of being too fucking crybaby about Robert. Yeah, he's like, I hate Ned, but Ned actually believed him. So, anyways. Uh, Stannis is like, yeah, I got Edric. Um... And he's like, everyone's going to think of Joffrey differently once they see this kid. And Edric, though, as we said, he's at Storm's End, which is, you know, very complicated for Stannis. What what are we going to do? And amongst many other complications in all the plans, he's like, you know what? Everything's going to go according to Keikaku. And Davos is like, no, it's not. And he knows that Davos has even more complications for him. And he's like, all right, fine, tell me, continue. And Davos is like, you know what? That closing phrase done in the light of the lord he's like you know the people are not gonna like these words and since you might want to change it to like the grace of gods old and new or in the sight of gods and men and davos tells him he does not know this new lord of light but he did know the ones that they burnt and so did everyone else because he's like you know the smith has kept my ship safe the mother has granted me seven sons stannis says like the most woman positive thing i've ever heard Stannis say and it isn't even that positive because he's kind of mocking it and he's like your wife gave you seven strong sons do you pray to her and it's and he's like, like it was wood not flesh I mean maybe he should maybe everyone should I feel I'm like saying. Davos owes Mario some shit that's for sure definitely Dav- I mean, she's like, what, at home taking care of all these kids by herself? I guess she has servants now. Never Half mind. Of them. She's got servants. Servants and like a quarter of the kids. Yeah. Davos retorts that, you know, all right, all right, it's so, but when I was a boy begging in Flea Bottom, it was actually the Septons who would feed me, not Rolor. And Stance reminds him that you- I feed you now. And Davos says, yes, yes, and in turn, I give you the truth. He says, your people will not love you if you take from them the gods they've always worshipped and give them one whose very name sounds queer on their tongue. Stannis disagrees that pronouncing Valor is difficult. That's the very first thing that he contests to this, and I think that's very important about his character. He's like, Valor, it's not that hard to say. <laughs> but then he says, the people have never loved me. I can't lose something I've never had, Davos. Oh. And he tells the story of the day that he quit believing in gods, which is when the wind proud broke across the bay and he lost his mother and father. Any god so monstrous to drown my mother and father would never have my worship, he says. So we're about to get to the heart of the episode and, and you know, the big emotional climax. But right before we get there, this this is what kicks it off, right? And this is a question that I have, like... Now that we we know how Stannis' story ends, or what it's striving towards, he's all like, any god so monstrous, right, to drown your mother and father? Sure. Those would be monstrous gods that you don't worship. And I'm like, then, what if gods that are so monstrous as to demand the death of your daughter at your own hand? Why would they have your worship? And I think Salador San provides a good perspective that not everyone, right, in Essos believes in R'hllor. 
It was very popular, but he grew up around it and chose not to believe it. He's like, it bored me. And he says, hopefully it bores your king soon, too. And the reason that it bored him and he didn't believe in R'hllor is it didn't offer him anything, right? The, the Seven and the Faith of the Seven, as Davos points out, have offered this faith. It, it, it offers culture. And for people like Davos, offered food and survival, right? It, it, they've been there. But what does... I mean, what does R'hllor offer anyone in Westeros? I'll, I'll, I think it offers something very much to Stannis. It offers the one thing to Stannis that every other religion has not. It has offered him a role. It has offered him importance, a narrative. It's given him a, a purpose it, and therefore given him self-worth. It's acknowledging him and saying to him, Stannis, finally you are valued. Finally you are important. Yeah, it's all the power that he's wanted, right? This is what... He's just wanted that assessment from anyone. Yeah. Anyone that's not himself to say to him, you did good. Davos asks him why he's signing on to this for lore, and Stannis is like, well, Davos, power. Power is why. The Red Priestess gives me power. Davos says, well, Crescent had wisdom, and Stannis says, I trust in Crescent's wisdom, and your wiles, and they've gotten me nothing. Davos? Damn. He says he came to the Stormlords a beggar, and they all laughed at him. But Stannis no longer plans to beg, and he will not let them laugh at him. The Iron Throne is mine by rights, but how am I to take it? He asks. Any man who must say he's the king. Yep. Hey. Yep. He says that everyone has more men and more gold than him, but he has ships and Melisandre, Half his knights are afraid to say her name. If she can do nothing else, a sorceress who can inspire dread in grown men is not to be despised. But he thinks she could be doing more. Yeah. So, again, we're getting to the heart of the chapter. But I will say, you know, this this chapter in general, it's a fantastic opening chapter that really shows you with the sorcery and burnings that this dark thing has just been brewing on this island not so far from King's Landing in the first book that we all finished and that this is what Stannis has been doing all that time when Ned was like, help! Stannis! So. We close the chapter out, though, with Proudwing, of course, who Stannis has projected all of his issues onto and will be taking no constructive criticisms about. When I was a lad, I found an injured Gashok and nursed her back to health. Proudwing, I named her. She would perch on my shoulder and flutter from room to room after me and take food from my hand, but she would not soar. Time and again I would take her hawking, but she never flew higher than the treetops. Robert called her weak wing. He owned a gyre falcon named Thunderclap, who never missed her strike. One day, our great-uncle Sir Harbert told me to try a different bird. I was making a fool of myself with Proudwing. He said, and he was right. Stannis Baratheon turned away from the window, and the ghosts who moved upon the southern sea. The seven have never brought me so much as a sparrow. It is time I tried another hawk, Davos. A red hawk. A sparrow! The sparrow, that's ah, important. The seven have never given me so much as a sparrow, except they're about to give a lot of people a lot of sparrows, so... Yep. Hang in there. <laughs> and that's Davos 1. I uh, I feel good about reading these chapters together. I'm going to level with you that I haven't really 
read these chapters together in this format. I've read them separately only. And I yeah. know I liked the guy and that I liked the POV, but the family dynamic, man, yeah. that's heart-wrenching. It's interesting, and it's something that I'm excited to dig into with Davos. It's we haven't. There's a lot that I feel like we haven't touched on here that we're definitely going to get to in later episodes. Yeah. I mean, it's a long. Uh, there's a lot of detail in it, right? And I think that it is fitting because George is trying to show us so much with these two men. We have two men that are willing to do anything to obtain power, but they both have very different definitions of power. For Davos, power is that his wife wants for nothing. Even if it's not as good as what Lady Valerian down the road is getting, Maria has real food, a real roof, even servants to help her with the keep. He treats her like a queen, his own queen. Power to Davos is giving his seven sons an opportunity at a better lifestyle that if they stay humble and work very hard and someday they're lucky, a higher power like Stannis will grant well wishes so that they can beat the rich men at their own game and become knights. And maybe even someday their kids will be friends with those lords and ladies' kids. But Stannis has already had this. His daughter is a proclaimed princess. He's proclaimed king. He has men celebrating, well, some in awe, some in fear, his name and his claim. But he still wants more. He wants to fill that hole that his parents left, this hole that's never been good enough, the shadow of his big brother, the light and sparkle of his younger brother. And he's clearly done playing games because whatever he's been doing before now has not worked. He's making that clear that this is his one big last chance and play for power through Relor, through Melisandre, that has sold him finally on this huge marketing scheme. But if we flip over to Davos, when Davos was young, his gosh hawk was begging in the streets of Flea Bottom, right? There's no proud wing for Davos. He was hoping for food and money to survive, hanging out in the ports, employing tricks to get by, other smugglers, other lords. It almost reminds me of the Irish emigrating to New York in the 1800s, assimilating into this new world of new ports and new people. Davos spends this chapter watching his step, being entirely careful about what he says in front of lords, never speaking over them, never dismissing them, always knowing his station, all while figuring out ways to stay one step ahead of them for him and his family. Stannis' sacrifice in the long Game of Thrones is Shireen, and Davos' sacrifice in turn ends up being his sons. In attempting to give them a better life, and by enrolling them in this Game of Thrones, his sons die. And if they don't, they're basically hostage to this political regime that he has now given his life to and his fingers. Yeah, and I think same as the question the, the question for both stannis and davos ends up being the same of like how far will you go to what extent will you sacrifice your humanity later on right after after because the, the the loss of davos's sons comes early on mm-hmm. and davos is going to draw a line somewhere that stannis won't and i love that uh the w- way that you really portrayed what stannis is after here because it's not that he wants king because he wants to like rule Mm-hmm. per se like i mean he has ideas he has things that he can do if he he rules but he wants it because as you said he wants to fill that that hole that emotional hole chasm yes that has been left from his family <laughs> god damn it Stavos. i just figured we were saying hole a lot yeah a lot so <laughs> steadily oh, we'll yet, get there yet. we'll get there someday someday yeah, it's a it's a rock and a hard place that Davos leaves himself, right? As we know when we get to a dance with dragons, Davos, it's a 
It's kind of like he's going off to do this business, but it might be the last task he decides to do for Stannis. Yeah. And, you know, Davos, as we are reminded, he's a knight, and he's a knight on the quest. And we'll talk a little more about that quest as it evolves in later episodes. But for now, we're going to call it quits here and you if you have any thoughts everyone you can let us know on social media at girls gone canon on twitter c-a-n-o-n or via email girls gone canon at gmail.com yes and if you are not already subscribed to us on a platform check us out at a platform near you like spotify apple podcasts google play uh god what else are we on amazon podcasts we are on iHeartRadio, stitcher you name it, Podbean is where we're hosted. We're there. Look us up. Girls Gone Canon. You know us. You listen to us. You're doing it right now, apparently. Maybe. Um, Maybe. Unless you do now. And, of course, you can also always find us on Patreon, where we also post all these episodes, as well as bonus episodes for our patrons, $5 and up. And just this past month of September, towards the end, we released our episode on Lease or Lice the city as part of our tour of the free cities which you know goes quite well together with this yeah it goes really well actually with the introduction of salador's son the lycini in this chapter yeah so we have that and we also have of course our discord for patrons ten dollars and up where we have fun fun group hangout discussions on specific topics and yes and as always I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Talk to you next week. Goodbye.